Well, good morning. If you'll turn to that passage, Psalm 60, and it's page 578. I must confess that um, I'll, try, I'll try and persuade you, twist your arm and do something, to turn to two other passages eventually as we go through, because uh, the Old Testament passage will show us something of the historical background, and uh, the New Testament will apply something of the lesson that's coming out of this psalm. So it's Psalm 60. Apologies, it's not a harvest psalm, is it? I looked at it, there's no, you see, even our esteemed leader had to go to Psalm 65 to get something about harvest. It's not, and I think it would be false to try and squeeze something out of it that isn't there. It wouldn't be wrong anyway. So it's rather like, you know, the Ryder, Ryder Cup, how they, you see the trajectory, the, the flight of the ball. I think we're just going to follow the flight of the ball here in Psalm 60. So looking to the Lord and seeking his aid, let's uh, do just that. In, in some ways, Psalm 60 reminds me of an interview with a comedy duo, which shows how twisted my mind is, I suppose, but maybe if they were still around, Morecambe and Wise, or Cannon and Ball, or Little and Large, this sort of thing. And you know the sort of question which, which comes up. Uh, how was it when you became an overnight success? An overnight success? Overnight? After 20 to 25 years playing the clubs? Living out of a suitcase? Nights in dingy boarding houses? Not to mention the battle between two star-struck egos. The pain and the rivalry behind their smiling gags. You see, it's this. Things aren't always as they first appear. And that's very much the way with our psalm. Things aren't always as they first appear. Look at that wadge, uh, this sort of introduction, the, the given background of Psalm 60 that you have before you get to the first verse. Something of the historical background. For the director of music, to the tune of the Lily of the Covenant. We won't have that played this morning, we've no idea what it is. I'd love to hear Lily of the Covenant. A miktam, we don't know what that means. Is it a musical phrase or does it just mean a poem? A miktam of David for teaching. Ah, it's for teaching. For teaching. And so you've got these directions to the Levitical music group. The setting for, for David's teaching psalm. And then you've got the historical, as you read through that little introduction there, You've got the historical circumstances that caused David's thoughts to flow. Uh, the battle against the combined forces of Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah. That's the Arameans of the, Arameans of the land of the two rivers, Euphrates, Tigris. Aram Zobah, that's the Arameans of northern Syria, or some biblical historians suggest the Bekar Valley, Valley, which makes it sort of contemporary. On top of all this, 
That's way up in the north of the country. On top of all this is the campaign right to the south of David's kingdom against the Edomites. And you read at the bottom there about the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So right from the beginning, Psalm 60 is a blood-stained song of instruction from the heart of a warrior king. And it's this little passage I wouldn't mind you looking at. It's Second Samuel and chapter 8. Because this is the historical background. And this is what's been happening. So it's Second Samuel and chapter 8. And I'm reading from verse 3. Now here are the Arameans. Verse 3. Moreover, David fought Hadadezek, son of Rehob, king of Zobar, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. Way up north there. David captured a thousand of his chariots and seven thousand. We won't read on because if you're an equestrian or a member of the RSPCA, you'll be most distraught, very bloodthirsty days. So verse 5, When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobar, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. And then this headline, The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Well, that's the north. Well, what about the south? What about the Edomites? Well, verse 13. Verse 13. And David became famous. So something important happened in this battle with the Edomites. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. And then again that headline, The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Well, there's the, um, there's the background. And all after that, Psalm 60 then, becomes a complete surprise. A total shock. You see that triumphant outcome? The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Well, things aren't as they always first appear, are they? Because in Psalm 60, we find a king in distress. Look at that verse 1. You have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. Well, that hardly sounds like a victory does it? Victory, victory all the way. And it's hard to know what's happened. But obviously, the author to Second Samuel hasn't told us the whole story. There, there was victory, but it wasn't without pain. And it certainly wasn't an overnight success. And the probable scenario, and there's a little bit of reading between the lines here, the probable scenario is that while David and his troops were engaged in, in heavy fighting with the combined forces of the Arameans way up there in the north, the Edomites took advantage of his absence and they launched an attack in the far south. And from our psalm, we gather it wasn't without its initial successes. Hence, David's distress. Lord, Lord, what's happening? What's happening? You've turned your back on us. You've rejected us. I wonder, is he feeling that he's being disciplined in some way because of his full-heartedness? You see that verse 1, 
You've rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You've been angry. Now restore us. Has he stepped over the mark, I wonder, uh, by rashly pursuing that northern campaign without waiting on God? But God doesn't lash out in anger, does he, in a fit of pique? But he does discipline us. Yes, but out of his concern and love for his children, the the book after Psalms is Proverbs. Here's a little quote from uh, Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. And of course that's quoted from and amplified in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. But, but David is hurting. He's feeling abandoned. Restore us. Turn your face towards us again. And and the seriousness of the military reversal is shown in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2. You've shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures for its quaking. You've shown your people desperate times. You've given us wine that makes us stagger. It's a political earthquake. People are asking, uh, where's the defence strategy? What's the king up to? And the land shakes, we're told. And the people stagger. And this is the kingdom of whose rule that we read, the Lord gave him victory wherever he went. Some victory this, isn't it? Some victory. What's happening to David? What's happening? Aren't we told that he's the man after God's own heart? What's God doing with his own chosen and appointed king? And we do encounter the same quandary in the New Testament. So if you can, you mustn't lose Psalm 60, which this is just a brief encounter, but we're just going to take a little look in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. And that happens to be page, I didn't give you the other page, did I? This happens to be page 115. 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 and the character here you know very well it's Paul this uh, man who is specially anointed and especially appointed by God the very first verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and then you look down to verse 8 and you see the painful the painful trials he suffers. Look at verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia, present-day Turkey. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. What were these hardships? Well, he doesn't elaborate. We don't know. Whatever happened, it placed Paul under the most extreme pressure. That phrase in verse 8, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. More literally, we were, ex- we were excessively burdened beyond our power, beyond our strength. There are words in contemporary literature, there are words used of an overladen ship being dragged beneath the waves by the weight of its cargo. Or, or a mule crushed to the ground by its excessive burden. It's a picture of total despair. They're strong words 
There it is. We, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. We thought we'd had it. Hope was crushed out of us. Now, who's speaking? The mighty apostle to the Gentiles. Crushed. Broken. Despairing. Lord? I thought the Christian life was supposed to be a life of victory. Why do you allow this to happen to your choicest servants? To Paul in the New Testament. To David in the Old. Actually, that verse 9, and that's why I wanted it read. That verse 9 might give us the clue. You, You see, David is the experienced campaigner. The skillful warrior. The champion over Goliath. And Paul, well, he's the highly educated Pharisee, isn't he? He's the man who is multi-talented, totally competent, brilliantly intelligent. Their record speaks for itself as you read of them. They can do it. They can do it. And there's the danger. There's the danger. You see verse 9? Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. Why did that happen, Paul? Well, listen on, I'll tell you. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves. Are you listening, David? Are you listening, Paul? Are you listening, Roy Denton? Are you listening? Are you listening? Here's the lesson that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. But on God. David, Paul, you, me. Here's the lesson we constantly need to learn and to relearn. It is not by our own accomplishments. It's not by what we do, but by total dependence upon our Saviour God. Total dependence upon our Saviour God. And isn't that the lesson that David learns as we go back to Psalm 60 we look at that that verse 4 which contrasts with the previous verses Uh, and he he says verse 4 but but for those who fear you you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow for those who fear you the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the the picture behind this, this verse is of the Lord raising his standard Raising his banner to gather his people as their defender, as the one who leads them. You'll find the same sort of thoughts raised in Isaiah chapter 11, chapter 49. The Lord raising his standard. And then you've got that little break in the psalm. Selah. Again, possibly a a musical notation. Perhaps meaning a, a, a musical term, meaning a musical rest. In my younger days, I wonder if it was the same for you, in my younger days, we were always taught when we came across Selah in a, in a psalm, and you often do, we were often sort of taught to read like this, to be unfurled against the boat, Selah. Think of that. Think of that. Pause a while. Stop and consider. Which leads us to our second point. Because in Psalm 60, not only do we have a king in distress, In Psalm 60, we we encounter God 
in control. And David, perhaps recognising his own weakness in trusting to his own capabilities, yet knowing God's choosing and his love, he he cries to the Almighty for his intervention. And there it is in verse 5. Save us. We're in a mess, Lord. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. Now that's reassuring, isn't it? That even in the painful reversals of life, even when the situation may be of David's own making, God hasn't withdrawn his love. His eternal and unconditional love. And he doesn't withdraw his love from you and me either. You who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever your circumstances, he he doesn't withdraw his love. You'll remember the triumphant outburst in the New Testament of Paul, won't you? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he goes on to say that he's absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing in earth or heaven can separate us from the love of Christ. Wow. Wow. That's verse 5. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. And then he recalls the prophetic word from God. In in fact, from verses 5 to 12, this prophecy regarding the land, you're going to find them reiterated in full in more joyful circumstances in another psalm. Sometime you can look at it. Psalm 118. Exactly the same words. It must be a prophecy which which has burned itself into David's soul. But this is where it comes from. This this situation between uh, the, with the Edomites. And so you've got this. God has spoken from his sanctuary, verse 6. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. Shechem is to the, Shechem is to the west of the Jordan. Sukkoth is to the east. He's saying the whole breadth of the land. Gilead is mine, that's to the east of Jordan. Manasseh is mine, that's the tribe which was divided between, uh, well, half west of Jordan, half east. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. Ephraim, the leading tribe to the north. Uh, Judah, the leading tribe to the south. Notice whose they are. Notice who's in control. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Judah, the royal tribe. Judah, my scepter. It's a reminder of of God's prophetic word regarding his coming king, the Lord Jesus. You remember way back in Genesis when Jacob is blessing his children and he says in Genesis 49 and verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his, the coming king of Judah from the family of David. 
And this God, this God, he's the defender of his people. You've got them all there. They're the, the foes to the south, Moab and Edom and Philistia. And uh, he highlights the, the enemies. And presently, David's main concern appears to be Edom because that's what he brings up again in verse 9. I wonder, I just wonder, here we are, battles that, battles that occurred so many years ago. But what about present battles? Where's your greatest danger as, as we fight the battle of life, as we fight the good fight of faith, as Paul says? The good fight, the, the, the fight of faith against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world with its attractions and its, and its pressures and its total antipathy to the exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the flesh with its appetites, its failures, and its foolishness. And the devil, who uses both the strengths of the world and the weaknesses of the flesh to inveigle his, his, his own temptations. Surely, like, like David, we, we need the third point to close his teaching psalm. And that is, not only in Psalm 60 do you have the, uh, a king in distress, not only God in control, but in Psalm 60 we discover a victory assured. And that's from verses 9 to 12. And taken by verse by verse, the, the lessons hammered home. In verse 9 we have a question. In verse 10 we have an answer. In verse 11 we have an appeal. And in verse 12 we have an assurance. So the question, verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Lord, my, my, my best attempts have failed. Uh, things just aren't happening. I've been repulsed time and time again. I just can't seem to do it, Lord. I need help. Who will help me? Who will lead me to Edom? Or as Paul cries out in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of, of death? Who will do it? Well, that's the question. The answer, of course, is verse 10. Is it not you, O God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies. Lord, you're the only one who can resolve this, yet you feel so distant. I, I seem to be struggling alone. Lord, I need you. Without you in the battle, I'm lost. And all this leads to the appeal, verse 11. Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. Lord, presence yourself with us. Come to our aid. And the big lesson is learned and has to be relearned so many times, doesn't it? All our precious plans and strategies are worthless against the enemy. And Lord, teach us afresh the lesson from, from that chapter about when you say you're the vine, chapter 15 of, of John, where you say, apart from me, apart from me, you can do nothing, absolutely nothing. If anything's to be done of eternal worth, you alone, Lord, must be the one who does it. You're the doer. Like many others, I've been amazed at the response to the ministry of Billy Graham. All right, he was a, 
a man who was widely criticised and perhaps many could preach better sermons. But I remember, don't you, the tramp, tramp, tramp of hundreds of feet. Many of whose feet took them to foreign fields, especially in, in his earlier missions down there in Haringey and Wembley. Obviously he was a, a chosen instrument for his time. I'm speaking in the past tense. He's still with us. But this time has gone. He was also, you know, remember a man of the word, that oft-repeated phrase of his, the Bible says, the Bible says, often copied but not with the same results. But also he was a man who was acutely aware of the Lord's honour. Remembering through the words of Isaiah, and he quoted this many a time, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. And Billy Graham was a man who humbly trod the perilous pathway of of fame and never forgot God's declaration. In the words of the AV, which was his Bible, my glory will I not give to another. It's me, says the Lord. While in Brazil, we we had a visit from an American missionary to one of the uh, smaller central states. If, 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 uh, if memory is correct, I believe it was Guatemala. And he told of how he was called in to interpret for the president, uh, the president of the country, when senior Christian leaders and, and some others paid a visit. Uh, and the first one for whom he, he interpreted, as he told us, was uh, an eminent Christian figure from the, uh, from the southern states of America. And actually he was one to whom he inclined. He had a sort of more of a separatist view, separatist view and that's the way this missionary inclined. But he said that as he interpreted for this man, all he talked about to the president was about his own work and this influential evangelical college that he had founded. It was sometime later that a missionary was invited to interpret for Billy Graham. And he was a bit reluctant because he wasn't, well, he, he didn't think too highly of Billy Graham. But reluctantly he said, okay, I'll do it. And he said, as he interpreted it for Billy Graham, all, this, all, all he spoke of to the president was concerning the Lord and the need to know Jesus as Saviour. I think Billy Graham had another convert. He certainly converted me again when I heard that story. I doubt if any of us will be Billy Graham's, but for all of us, the message of verse 11 is absolutely clear and vital. Give us aid against the enemy, for without you, Lord, my feeble efforts are worthless. Absolutely worthless. Yours alone is the glory. It's not a back-slapping jump for us in any way. Which leads us to the assurance. Verse 12. With God we shall gain the victory. And he, will you notice it's not I will, he will trample down our enemies. Reading of victory immediately takes 
my mind back to the New Testament again, but just a little quotation. This is from 1 John chapter 5, you might remember it. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a comment comment often heard, perhaps somebody said it to you, I wish I had your faith. I wish I had your faith. But as the New Testament passage makes plain, it's not the quality of faith that's important. It's the object of our faith. The one in whom we believe. And the New Testament passage makes plain, it's Jesus, the Son of God. The one who came into the world to be our Saviour. Dying on the cross. Bearing our sin. The one who rose victorious from the grave. And our victory is to enter into his victory. That's verse 12. With God we shall gain the victory. And he will trample down our enemies. The the victory is God's. The repentance, submission and dependence is ours. The glory is his. Always his. So Psalm 60. Not a harvest psalm, is it? But an important message for us, Psalm 60, a king in distress, a God in control, and a victory assured. It's his victory as I commit my whole life to him in the Lord Jesus.